We're trying to follow Mark's lead. If you read through the, through the Gospel of Mark, he's really concise, he's really to the point, and we're trying to follow that lead. We're trying to get straight to the hub of what's going on. So that's what I'm going to do today. And I've got two stories. It's going to be like this. See, I don't think I quite got it. If I'm going to be really honest with you, stripping it back is not what happened last week. I think God spoke by his grace last week, and, and that we have a great God who can speak uh, through whatever vessel he chooses. Um, but this week, we're going to strip it right back. It's two stories and a point about each story. So if, if you can't remember that, we're in big trouble. Okay, so it's two stories, a point about each story. And I want us to think about why the gospel is good news for us now. I think in the past, this idea of the gospel being good news, it's been a little bit like, well, a long time, in, you know, there's this, this idea that it's good news because we have a home in heaven. Do you know what I mean? And it's good news because of that. And we can look forward to our home in heaven. But I think when Jesus comes and declares the good news of the kingdom, he says the kingdom's come near and he's about with his people. I think he's meaning that there's more to this good news than that. He's meaning there's good news for us right now, right for you, just right now. Hearing the gospel of Jesus means that you leave with some good news. Good news for our world. Good news for our fractured world. Good news for our like confused societies good news for people struggling in relationships and depression. It's good news for us right now. So we're going to look at two things, two reasons why the gospel's good news for us right now. I, mean, I don't want you to park the fact that it's you know, the home in heaven and the fact that, that one day when we're older, we can look forward with confidence to eternity. I don't want you to park that, but I want you to really think about why it's good news for you now. So we're going to strip it back and see that. And we're going to observe people in the, in the two stories, we'll observe people who've, who've got a certain worldview, they've got a certain way of doing things, and then they meet Jesus, and he interrupts that worldview, and then everybody walks away. And this is what I'm hoping you'll do with your worldviews and with how you see the world. You go, all right, okay. And that, that might not sound like a grand ambition for a preacher, but I want you, after I've told you these two stories, like these two people who interact with Jesus, to go, all right, okay. That's interesting. So that's what I'm hoping for. So the first story... And maybe the text uh, could be up at this point. That'd be really helpful. Is Jesus healing the paralytic? And the question that I want to that I want you to all to ask is: What? You know, so there's, a, there's, big, there's big people following Jesus around here. What do they walk away thinking? You know, this is what happens. Jesus does the thing, and then the people walk away. What is their chat when they walk away after observing what Jesus does? So here's the story. And if you're if you're young, you're engrossed in the worksheets. But if you're, if you, maybe if you're not, you might want to listen to this story because this is, this is one of those stories in the Bible. My dad used to love telling me stories like this. He's a great story. Stories that you can kind of see in your mind. So I want you to try and picture with me as much as you can so you remember the story of Jesus, the paralytic. Jesus comes home. That's what it says. He goes back to Capernaum. Now, at this point in time, Jesus' fame is, is going like that. So we often read about him trying to go to lonely places. I think he's trying to go to lonely places. It's a bit like me. Every now and again, you're like, I just need a break from the people. I think he's like that. I think people are following him around the whole time. And we've got this scene where he goes home. I think he's going back to Capernaum. I think he's probably going to Peter's house. I think that's how it is. And the people are just, I mean, it's just the same thing happens again. Jesus starts to talk. He's done some miracles. I'm not saying there's not loads else to do in these times. They've not got, you know, you know all the consoles and stuff that we've got. But they, they just flock there to listen to him. And you've got this scene where Jesus is talking and then the crowd builds and builds and builds and builds. And then there's this paralytic guy. 
who's on the edge of this crowd. And it says he's got some friends with him. And I imagine four friends, because I think, you know, as you see the story, it's going to take four people to lift him on his bed, that kind of story. And they're outside. And it's almost like you have this moment where they go, and I don't know which way the conversation goes, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I, I always read as much as I can into the story, and I'm always digging around. I wonder how this happened. I'm sure that it's like, this is your miracle cure right here. We can, it's, it's right there. This guy that does the healing is right there. We can get you to this guy. And you've got this, you've got this sort of scene emerges that they go like, right, let's just get him to Jesus. Let, let's get him there. Or, or, you know, so they, they make their way through. And this sounds like one of my plans because they end up on the roof. This is like a, this is like an ash way to do things. You just, I almost got this sense of when they get up there, they're looking at each other going, so now what? We're on, the, we're on the roof, surely we want to get into the house. But they're desperate to meet Jesus. So they start, and you can sort of sense the desperation. They pull away at the roof, and they dig away at the roof, and all of a sudden they create a hole in the roof, and they drop the man in below Jesus. Now there's a rule when you're preaching. It's the first thing they tell you in preaching week. If anybody enters through the roof, you've got to stop and observe them coming down. So if it happens tonight while I'm preaching, and maybe it just happens anyway, if somebody drops in through your ceiling, you just so there's this moment where... The hole comes in the roof, and everybody's looking up like this. And you can imagine, I'm guessing it's a sort of a dirt house, and there's dust everywhere, and the, the dust has been created. And then the guy's there on the floor, and then the dust clears, and Jesus looks at the guy. And here's what he says to him. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Now, I want us just to try and figure out how everybody's seeing this situation, because I think Jesus sees this one way, and everybody else He's maybe looking at it in a different way. Jesus sees it, and he's got his eyes focused on it. I think everybody else is looking at it. If I'm looking at it in there, I'm looking at the hole in my roof, and I'm thinking, that's a, that's a nightmare to fix. And if I'm not looking at my hole in my roof, I'm looking at this paralytic guy on the floor, this desperate guy who Jesus, as he almost feels like, overlooked. He said, your sins are forgiven. It almost sounds cruel, doesn't it? Because everybody in that room's thinking, Jesus, that's not why this guy's here. This guy can't walk. But know what Jesus is looking at in this moment. Jesus sees this whole event through the eyes of faith and relationship with him. Everybody's looking at the, the guy on the floor or the hole in the roof. There's, there's so much going on. There's so much immediate stuff. And Jesus is looking at this story and saying, "Who? where is the faith in this story? That's so often in our lives... They kind of run down this pattern where it's all about whatever the big thing is in front of us right now, that's what life's about, isn't it? Whatever the big story is, whatever's coming our way, whether it's a health thing or a job thing or whatever it is, you go, this is the story, and this is what it's about, and it's how I navigate this story. Whenever we read about God, he looks in, and he is looking, in whatever we're looking at, he's looking for faith. He's saying, where will I see faith in this story? That's what he's looking for. The teachers of the law as they look around, they are raging mad. And it's not really out of sympathy with these guys who've done this incredible kind action that have been overlooked. They're angry because Jesus has taken the place of God. That's their anger. Who can forgive sins? That's their anger. Listen to what Jesus says because they're thinking that. And this is, this is what the story goes. Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say Get up, take your mat, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat, and go home. He took up his mat and walked out in full view of them all. What 
Does Jesus' actions leave everybody in this room thinking? What is everybody thinking about? They've just observed. So just hold it. Do the diagnosis. Diagnostics. Look back at the story. What is everybody thinking? They've just seen one man's wildest dreams come true. They've just seen a guy who couldn't walk, walk out of a room. They've just observed that. That's point one. They've just seen that happen. And yet what they're realizing in this story is that is not the main thing. They've just seen a man's wildest dreams come true. They've realized it's not the main thing because the man who did the miracle prioritized something else. Peace with God. Here's the, here's the flip side for us. There's something more significant in your life than even your wildest dreams coming true. Even your wildest dreams coming true. And this is, this is kind of the point one on why the gospel is good news for you right now. It's because it gives us the best view of our stuff. This gives us the best perspective on our stuff. If we're with Christ, we get the best perspective. So just hold on to that thought. I'll explain it. Because you're kind of saying, why, why does it matter what kind of perspective I have? Why, is it, why would it be so brilliant to have, this, to have a great insight and a great perspective? I'll give you a little illustration, a little anecdote to maybe just get, get you to get the cogs going, get you to think through why, why that's the case. Uh, my favorite actor... Bit of a, I've got a bit of a man crush uh, on this guy. Uh, Matt Damon, um, just awesome guy. Made this film, Goodwill Hunting, and he got an Oscar for it. And if you've not seen it, it's, it's like just a beautiful film. Robin Williams, just at his best, just as in, his endearing best. And he got his Oscar, and he got it at the age of 27. And he's on the Graham Norton show, and he's talking about this moment a long time afterwards. And Graham Norton asks him kind of a leading question. He's looking for a bit of gossip. So he says, you know the night you got the Oscar when you were 27? That must have been a wild night, right? That just must have been. So he sort of led him down the alleyway of, go and tell us how you debauched yourself on the night you got the Oscar when you were 27. And Matt Damon, and I encourage you to go and you know, watch. It's on YouTube. Go and have a look for this interview. It's beautiful. He gets really serious really quick because this was a pivotal moment for him. I'm going to read out exactly verbatim what Matt Damon says when he, when he follows this leading question. And I want you to imagine him. It's a bit emotional. And he's really kind of serious. He's like, I want you to grasp this. He says, I remember very clearly looking at the award and thinking very clearly and saying, thank goodness I didn't screw anybody over to get this. Imagine chasing that, and he's pointing at kind of the Oscar, and not getting it, then getting it in your 80s and 90s and looking back at your life with all of life behind you and realizing what an unbelievable waste of time your life was. Because it can't be good enough. It can't fill you up. If that's a hole you have, and he's almost kind of preaching as he's giving this interview at this point, if that's a hole you have, it won't fill it. And I felt so blessed at 27 to have that awareness because I wouldn't have known it unless I had it. Unless he'd got the Oscar, he wouldn't have known what that was like. And my heart broke for a second as I imagined another version of me as an old man saying, where did my life go? And what have I done? What was his prize? What was his prize? He got the Oscar. That was a prize. But the prize for him was a gift, the gift of a good perspective. He could, at 27, look at this amazing thing, this good thing that could kind of ruin you, and he could put it in the appropriate place. An incredible gift, an incredible blessing. That is the gift of the gospel. It's what being with Jesus does. It can take things, good things in our life, because we've all got Oscars. 
that we chase. We've all got things that we really want. We've got success, credibility, family, popularity, beauty, position, career. Go on and on. There's all things that, we, that are good things that we go, oh, I really want this. And what the gospel does, what being with Jesus does in this story is allow the people watching to say, right, okay, that is an amazing thing, but I can put it safely in its place. That's why it's good news for us right now. Because in this story... The most amazing thing you've got going sits dwarfed. It's dwarfed by knowing the peace of God. That's the first thing. It gives you the best view of your stuff. Second story. So we're jumping on. That's one point, one story. There's obviously other things to say about that story, but I'm keen for you to remember the one point. Jesus eats with the tax man. Let's read it out uh, just now. We jump down to verse uh, 13, I think, somewhere in there. Read it with me. Jesus eats with the tax man. Ask the same question again. What does Jesus' actions leave everybody thinking? Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up. And followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, and this is, you know, the little thing that sticks in your head, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Why is this? What, what do people go away thinking from this event? Why is this good news for us right now? You need to try and understand the dynamic of the two groups. If you're going to get underneath this story, you need to understand the two groups. There's two groups mentioned, sinners and tax collectors and the keepers of the law. And they're kind of like diametrically opposed groups. And you kind of notice as you read through when the Bible makes reference to these people, how it talks about tax collectors, basically, it's in the same breath as sinners. Do you know what I mean? It's like, this is the scum of the earth. And when you dig around at what the, what the root word means, it kind of means like people of the soil. In the words of Jarvis Cocker, I think, common people. Do you know what I mean? Just the scum of the earth. That's, that's how you to think of these people. So you've got this group of people, and there's a sense in which you, can, you, can, you come to that perspective, particularly about the tax collectors, because the, these, these guys, these Jewish guys, are selling out their mates by collecting taxes and giving it to the Romans. So, you know, you, we hate these guys. And these guys, can never, these guys can never understand what righteousness is. So you've got this group here. Then you've got the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the law keepers, and they're your scrupulous, zealous keepers of the law, guardians of righteousness, who look at it in a slightly different way. They almost, as I read them, I almost see like righteousness comes as a gift, and it's something that they've got to preserve and keep. They've got to kind of hem it in. So you'll read, there's a lot of laws, in the Torah that we read through, a lot of laws, but it's almost like as they go through, they're like, well, we've got to keep this righteousness and we've got to prove that we're the righteous ones. It almost reads like that. So let's make more and more laws and let's try and hem it in. So there's the kind of this exclusive group going on and there's this group of people that are never going to get it. And then we've got this story of Jesus who walks in, and this is why this story is so brilliant and it's such a good picture to see. Jesus walks in, this righteous man, this, this guy that everyone's looking at going, is this, is this guy special? Is he, is he God? Is he, is he holy? What is he? And he walks in with his entourage, and he sees the scum of the earth, and he walks in, and not only does he say hello to the scum of the earth, but he says, right, I'm coming round for something to eat. It's almost like the worst thing he could do to this religious group. 
because they're so keen on their eating and getting that right. That's, that's one of the ways that they hem the law in. And they kind of peer in through the windows and they observe Jesus eating, laughing, chatting, talking to this bunch of people who are the scum of the earth. Here's what's happened. The groups that never mix, the groups that never mix are gone. You see that? You've got one big room of people. You've got one big room of people who are trying to, in the words of Jesus, work out if they're sick or not. That's what's happening in this story. Righteousness isn't anymore achieved by staying in the club, by proving that you're better than somebody else, by hemming yourselves in with the law. Righteousness in this story, as it unfolds as Jesus speaks to these people, is connected to how broken and how much you need Jesus, how broken and how sick you realize you are. It's not about hemming it in, not about creating more laws, not about bigging yourself up to look more holy. It's about realizing how broken you are. Why is this good news? Why is this good news for us today? Think about this. The last thing that our world needs is more self-righteous people maybe even sometimes Christians, more self-righteous people bigging themselves up and asking people to look at them for how great that they are and how holy they are. What the world needs right now, what's good news for the world right now, is people who've met Christ and seen God and seen themselves in the reflection and realize that they're broken and who are now able to sit across the room from people they really don't like very much and look them in the eye and have fellowship and have something to eat with them. Not because they're great, but because they've met God. This is the second bit of good news. It's the healthiest look at others that we can have. It's not a, and, it, and as Christians, I think we'd, we've maybe done this. We may be guilty of this. This is one of the things that all of us do sometimes. We, we go into this pattern of making ourselves look better. We big ourselves up. We prove our holiness. And Jesus is stamping on all of that, and he's saying no. I mean, can you imagine, imagine this room, what's the chat in this room? Is it, is it these tax collectors meeting with these disciples? Are they bigging themselves up? Are they, are they thinking about new laws, a way to, way, to st- way to sort of prove how righteous they are, or are they talking to each other about how broken they are and how they're just beginning to realize the kind of things that they need to do? One of my favorite writers blogs that church becomes like a social, a social hub when it should be more like Alcoholics Anonymous. Church just becomes like this social group where people tell each other how great they are. When, it, when actually, when you look at what Jesus does, it should be more like people that come together and realize that they're broken. Because that changes then how you look at other people. If you begin to realize, man, in the presence of God, I'm one of the broken ones too. You don't look at other people and you don't look down their n- your noses at them. You say, okay, so I'm broken and you're broken. Let's figure this out together. That's the second thing. The rub with all of this, this is the culmination of the talk, the rub with all of this, and you might be looking back going, that's quite a nice speech and I would imagine that the world would be a good place. If I could pull all this off, that would be a good thing. But the reality is, Ash, I don't keep a good perspective on life. I don't see the peace of God right at the top all the time. I've got other stuff. You know, I, I care about my career. In fact, I'm passionate about my career. In fact, that 
that's, that's the most important thing. In fact, I, really, I just, I just want to be really popular. Popularity is the most important thing. Or whatever it is that gets to the top, and you say that. And perhaps you say as well, at the same breath, I hate some people. I actually just hate some people. And actually, I quite like hating people. I want to go on with a grudge against some people. I'd actually rather go back to hemming myself in and proving myself better. That feels like a better way to work for me. It's when you get to this sort of thinking and when you assess yourself in this sort of, sort of way that you realize where the heart of this story is. Because the truth of it is, we can't keep a good perspective. And we can't love everybody all of the time. But somebody else can. We don't get there by our own volition. We won't get there because we really determined to get there. We get there. This lifestyle, this better way, this beautiful way to live is made possible as we gaze and stare and gawp and wonder at this man, Jesus Christ. He's our hope and he's our refuge.